Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, surely there, there is, and in our own hearts there ought to be no more delightful thing than to have our thoughts and our affections, our words, set apart in conscious devotion, in worship, in praise, in remembrance of our God and his great triumph in Jesus our Lord and what it is for us to be sharers in him. And Father, as we are worshipers in that way as individuals, there is a a profound power to our worship as we come together as your people with one heart, one mind, one faith, one spirit, one baptism into the life of Christ, into the life of our Father and lives hidden with Christ in you. And as we gather as your people to worship you in spirit and in truth, I pray that those meditations, those words, those longings, the things that are even deep within our being would be pleasing to you, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would forgive us and be merciful to us. For our hearts are not as devoted as we would have, and we do find ourselves wayward in many ways, distracted, often discouraged, disillusioned. But I pray, Father, even as we begin this new series in the Psalms, that you will truly help us to discover and to draw on and to find as very precious to us this great reservoir of praise and worship and devotion, the songs of sonship. I pray for your your help for me, not only in this day, but in the weeks to come, that you would even flesh out in my heart my own burden and longing for myself and for these saints, and that there will be a great fruitfulness in this consideration that lies before us, that we would not just learn, but that we would be transformed. And that your work in us would be fruitful and well-pleasing to our hearts and to your eternal purpose. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Colin mentioned, starting a new series in the Psalms and... uh, As I mentioned in my prayer, I've titled this series, I thought about kind of what's a good title to attach to it, but I've titled this The Songs of Sonship. 
And hopefully that will become clear to us as we, we move through this series. You, you might say, well, I'm not sure I'd come up with that title for the Psalms, the Songs of Sonship. But I think that we'll discover that that is exactly the case in, in all of the dimensions of sonship, what it is to be children of the Father. And the struggles of that, the grappling of that, the joy of that, the uh, confusion of that, the perplexity of that, the work of God uh, in his creation, in and through human beings as really what we discover and unfold and profit from in the Psalms. In terms of my, my reason, and I know I've spoken to this at least briefly leading into this series, but my, my reason for doing this, my goal in doing this series as I thought about where do we go next, is really recognizing the centrality of the Psalms in Israel's life and Israel's worship as the people of God. The Psalms were at the very heart of their sense of themselves, how they perceive themselves as the people of God, how they perceive their God, how they perceive their sonship, their calling, ultimately their vocation. And the Psalms really unfold for us the whole of Israel's history and life. We, we can go all the way back to Moses as having penned a psalm uh, coming out of Egypt. And all the way forward to beyond the Babylonian captivity after there was the return from exile, you have the Jews still continuing to compose psalms praising God. And, and in terms of authorship, we span probably a thousand years or so. But in terms of the subject matter of the psalms, really all the way back to the point of the eternal counsel of the living God and his intent and design and creation, the calling of the Israelite people, the calling of Abraham for the sake of the world. In other words, the Psalms unfold for us really uh, 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 a storyline of the whole of the salvation history. They provide an account of that and an interpretation of that, but not like uh, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica, but really with all the passion and all of the emotive quality of that. Uh, uh, they express the passion of all of the dynamics of Israel's covenant relationship with God. The struggle, the challenges, the faithfulness, the need of forgiveness, all the dynamics of God's relationship with his covenant people, and ultimately his relationship with the created order that had Israel at its center. And so, as I say, the Psalms really helped to inform Israel's sense of itself, not just as a nation per se, but as the covenant people, as the Son of God. Israel as God's election in Abraham. Israel as the people called to be God's servants on behalf of the world, on behalf of the creation itself. And so the Psalms also help to inform Israel's sense of its obligation. What did faithfulness really look like? What does it mean to be faithful to this God as the people of God, as the children of God? And with that perspective, with that orientation and that focus throughout the Psalms, that enables us to see how the Psalms are Christ-centered. 
Remember Jesus himself on, on the road to Emmaus as he's talking with the two men, he opens their eyes and he says, oh, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had said. But, he, but Luke records that, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he enables them to see all that is in the scripture concerning himself. Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, the Christ-centeredness of the Psalms. And so often, as we tend to do with the scriptures in general, we say, yes, the Psalms are are Christ-centered as the scriptures are Christ-centered in the sense that here's a Psalm that's messianic, and here's a verse that's messianic, and here's a passage that's messianic. But the Christ-centeredness of the Psalms is much more thoroughgoing and profound than that. It's not that the Psalms contain, uh, you know, as a corpus, that they contain a handful of what we would call messianic Psalms, although, although that's clearly the case. But as the Psalms again unfold, as they chronicle and interpret, flesh out and grapple with Israel's own history and life, Israel's vocation as God's election, as God's covenant son, all of that, all of that reaches its terminus and has its focal point in Christ himself. He is the one in whom Israel's own life, Israel's election, Israel's vocation, he is the one in whom all of that becomes yes and amen. If Israel was the Abrahamic seed on behalf of the world, Israel became Israel in truth in the Messiah. And so the Psalms are thoroughly Christocentric in the way that all of the scriptures are. But it's also easy, given the, 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 the content and the orientation of the Psalms, to see why they were central to Israel's worship. The Psalms were Israel's hymn book during the Second Temple period. And we know that historically. It's not a matter of speculation. All the way, the Second Temple period, beginning with the rebuilding of the temple at the end of the 6th century BC, all the way up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Psalms were Israel's hymn book. They were the center of Israel's worship. And an obvious and important implication of that is that Jesus himself was born into that world. Jesus didn't come into the world as the Son of God who had it all figured out from the time that he was an infant. He grew as, as a baby, right? He had to learn to speak. He had to be potty trained. He went through a process of understanding himself as an Israelite, understanding Israel's God and eventually beginning to flesh out his own messianic identity and vocation. By the time he's 12 years old, you see him reasoning with the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem, and they're astonished at his understanding and his perception. But nonetheless, Jesus had to grow in his own uh, human understanding of what it is to be a human being, who this God of Israel is. What, what Israel is all about and ultimately where his, his own life fit into the purposes of God, his own identity and vocation. And my point is that the Psalms would have been at the very center of that. If the Psalms informed Israel's sense of itself, the Jewish population's sense of themselves and who they were as the uh, God's elect ones in Abraham and their purpose 
for being and on behalf of the, the world. So that was true of Jesus as well. And you see this in the Gospels, how often he draws on the Psalms as he is thinking about and explaining and interpreting himself to his own generation, even to his disciples. And they pick up that same pattern from him as Jesus commissions them to be the interpreters and the proclaimers of him to the world. They also draw upon the Psalms in saying this one is the Messiah. So the Psalms play a central role even in Jesus' sense of himself, in, in how he understood himself and as a man, as a worshiper of God, as a servant of God, what faithfulness look, looks like, what worship and devotion look like, what sonship looks like. And if that was the case for Israel, ultimately, climactically in Jesus, then how much more ought it to be the case for us? as sons in the sun. Jesus grew up reading, singing the Psalms, thinking about God, coming to understand his father, worship, who he was, what his life was about through the Psalms, and it ought to be the same for us. Well, that's my reason for wanting to do this, and my ultimate goal is that the Psalms would begin to play that role in our lives more more and more. But those of you that know me know that I like to start at the beginning, and so I'm not going to jump into the psalms, any particular psalm today. But I want to start with some initial considerations, and it has to do with the psalms as literature. How do we deal with the psalms from even a reading or an interpretive standpoint? What principles do we bring to bear? Before we start focusing on individual psalms or themes, we need to think about how we even interact with the psalms from even a literary standpoint. And I think most of us are aware that the Psalms are constructed as poetry. What we don't often think about is that perhaps as much as half, but certainly at least a third of the Old Testament scriptures are constructed in the genre of poetry. The prophets, as we have the written record of the prophets, their written record is in the genre of poetry. Why is that important? Because too often we want to read the prophets as if it's, you know, they're, they're giving us a newspaper article rendition of the future, bringing it into the present. We want to read the prophets as if they're speaking to us in a, again, encyclopedia, Britannica sort of way. Here's what's going to happen in the future as a newspaper kind of rendition, and that's not the case. The prophets wrote in the genre of poetry. Obviously, the wisdom literature, the Psalms, all of that takes the genre of poetry, and there's a certain way that poetry has to be understood and interacted with. So whether we're reading Isaiah or we're reading the Proverbs, we need to be applying the principles of how poetry works. And that's some of what I want to talk about today. If it's true that as much as a half and certainly a third of the Old Testament content is in the genre of poetry, we have to understand, we have to understand the way that poetry works. Not just Hebrew poetry, although I'm going to talk about that, but poetry more in general. And if we don't understand the way poetry works and if we don't read the scripture in that way, 
then we're going to miss the point. And too often, I think a lot of the speculation and the, the, the ways that people go down the path, particularly as they read biblical prophecy, is tied to the failure to read it in the genre in which it's constructed and presented to us. When Isaiah talks about all the nations coming to meet with Yahweh on Mount Zion, they're not saying that the day is going to come when six billion people will all converge on the city of Jerusalem. That's not the point. It's important that we read the scriptures in the way that they are written. And the scriptures themselves give us the key to a lot of these principles. But when we think about poetry, and this isn't just poetry, but but all language, and certainly all written language, one of the key aspects or dimensions, features of all language, verbal and written, is this thing called figurative language. And it takes lots of different forms. It always poses certain interpretive challenges, but in terms of the scripture, there's even more challenges because of the principle of remoteness. What do I mean? These figures are drawn from a time that is far removed from us, a culture that is far removed from us, circumstances that are far removed from us. And too often what we want to do, and we do this naturally, is everything we look at, we port through the lens of our own time, our own perspective, our own language, our own vocabulary, our own experiences. We read the scriptures as if they were written to us, and they weren't written to us. They pertain to us, but they deal with an ancient time and ancient perspectives, ancient ways Uh, of, of expressing things, ancient figures. So when we come to the scripture, and this is certainly true of the Psalms, we have to recognize first the presence of figurative language, but even beyond that, how to interpret the figures themselves. We have to recognize the presence of figurative language, but we also have to recognize the meaning of those figures themselves. And that will again be derived from the scriptural context. The scripture's own uh, awareness of, of its history, its culture, its place and time, the text itself, canonical fullness, all of these things are a part of, of this interpretation. But I want to just flesh out, and you don't need to write all these down, these will be in the notes, but I just wanted to give you some examples of the, these ideas of figurative language. And there are many, many more, but these are common ones, and these are ones that you'll find in all language, and you'll certainly find them in the scriptures themselves. The first is this idea of metaphor, and it's a very general kind of figure, but metaphor is a direct comparison where a word or a phrase that denotes one object or one kind of object is used in the place of another. And it's used to indicate a particular likeness or analogy. When Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep... You know, now often our minds, we know, you know, we don't even consciously think, okay, that's a metaphor. We know that Jesus isn't talking about actual sheep. It's a metaphor. But many metaphors are not quite that obvious. But that's the way a metaphor functions. And the other thing I want to say about that is that all of these things where something stands in the place of something else, 
The relationship is one of analogy, not identity. If you think about two circles, um, they overlap, and the area of overlap is the correspondence or where the analogy lies. If the two circles are the same size and they sit right over the top of each other, then they're one and the same, right? A equals B. But analogy is correspondence in a certain realm to a certain extent. And our job as interpreters is to decide what is the arena of correspondence and how do we interpret that correspondence. In other words, when Jesus said, feed my sheep, in what sense and to what extent does that idea of a sheep correspond to human beings, Jesus' people in particular? Sheep and disciples are not identical. So how, where is the correspondence and to what extent is the correspondence? Now, as I said, in many examples, it's easy for us. Our brains do it automatically. We don't even think about it. We may not be entirely right, but it's a very natural thing for us. But in many instances, it's not that natural because, again, of the distance of time and space and circumstance. The remoteness makes it hard for us to sort that out. But we have to sort that out. We have to or we will miss the point. So metaphor is the starting point. Related to that or similar to metaphor is simile, another kind of comparison. But it often uses a comparative term like like or as or as such. So, you know, again, an easy example is the statement in the garden, you will be like God. That's a that's a simile. Once again, a comparison is being drawn between Adam and Eve and God. But what is the extent of that and what is the nature of that? What is the significance of that correspondence? Personification is another common figure of speech. And that's where um, it's a kind of descriptive figure in which human attributes or functions or features are assigned to inanimate things. Very, very common in the scriptures, very common in scriptural poetry, even in the Bible's wisdom literature. And perhaps the most easy one to point to is the way in which the wisdom literature in the scripture actually personifies wisdom itself. If you read in the Proverbs, wisdom is personified. And ultimately, that has its own Christ-centeredness, right? The one in whom wisdom actually becomes embodied as a man. In him dwell all the fullness of wisdom and knowledge, right? Jesus is the incarnation of all wisdom. But wisdom is personified in the Bible's wisdom literature. Even the poem of Proverbs 31, which is an acrostic poem, draws on the idea of wisdom as a woman personified. So personification is another important figure of speech in the scriptures. Uh, Another is metonymy. Metonymy is where the name of one thing is substituted for the name of something else that it's somewhat related to. So, for instance, the statement uh, where Paul says their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Well, what is he saying? Belly represents physical, natural, earthly appetites and desires. 
In other words, they serve their passions and desires and priorities in this life. Their God is their belly. That's metonymy. It's a substitute of a name of one thing for something else. Similar to that, but slightly different, is synecdoche. And some of you may know some of these ideas. You certainly understand the principle if you don't know the word. It's another form of substitution, but it's a substitution not of the name of one thing for the name of something else, but a part for the whole or a whole for the part or, uh, you know, the, the material of which something is made for the thing itself. So, you know, uh, again, an, an easy example is the Bible's use of the term flesh to represent the human being, not just in the sense of sinfulness, but not, but man as a physical being. God says, the end of all flesh has come before me. That's synecdoche. And there are all kinds of examples of these things. But metonymy and synecdoche shouldn't be confused with symbolism because symbolism is where the correspondence is assigned. There isn't a kind of relatedness between the two things. For example, the animals in in Daniel's prophecy that he assigns as corresponding to various nations, that's symbolism. Those are symbols. There's nothing about Greece that looks like a leopard, right? Or Rome that looks like a bear or whatever it happens to be. Those are assigned. But once they're assigned, then they have to be treated in that way. You have to recognize that symbolic correspondence. But there isn't a relatedness between the things, as is generally the case with metonymy and synecdoche. Another very common biblical figure, and this is not just in the scriptures, it's very common everywhere, is this idea of paronymasia, wordplay, playing on words. Most names and designations in the scripture are paranomastic. Adam's name, Adam, comes from the fact, it reflects the fact that he is made from the dust of the ground, Adamah. Israel's name is paranomastic in that it represents the fact that Israel prevails with God. Yisrael, a double entendre. Israel prevails with God, God prevails with Israel. He prevails with God is is the idea. Yisrael, Isaac's name, Yitzhak, he laughs. Sarah, Sarah laughs, right, when she's told she will have a child. God says you'll name him Isaac. Yitzhak, forever you will remember this idea of laughing at the God who will provide the child of the covenant, the child of a barren womb. You see it often um, in in the Hebrew text in a way that we don't get it in English because it's Hebrew paranomasia. It's tied to the, the, the sounding of things. So, for instance, in Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah, look, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see a branch of an olive tree. And God says, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to keep it. And you're like, I don't get it. You would get it in Hebrew because the, the branch of the almond tree is shakade. And God is watching over his word. That participle is shokade. It's a change of one uh, vowel. 
shakade, shokade. That kind of paranomasia is common in the Old Testament, but it tends to get lost on us in English because, you know, we're like, okay, almond branch, watching over my word, where's the correspondence? But paranomasia is another common thing. And where you see things, even in the Old Testament, um, we all have resources available to us. Even if you don't read Hebrew or whatever, you can still find out what is that point of correspondence by doing your own study. Another common one is hyperbole. Hyperbole is very much a part of all language and all expression, but hyperbole is a conscious, intentional exaggeration for the sake of rhetorical effect. It's very common in Hebrew reasoning. It's very common, you know, in in a lot of different ways. You know, you have Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. Well, is he really saying, cut out your, you know, pluck out your eye and throw it away? No, it's hyperbole. He's making a point. He's making a point. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's talking about the supremacy of love. He says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, if I even have faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, all of that is nothing. So he uses hyperbole to make a point about the supremacy of love. And we have to capture those ideas. Another one is irony. Irony is one of these ideas that's commonly misunderstood. We tend to say anything that seems unusual or, or not what we expected or whatever, we say, oh, that's ironic. This is ironic. That's ironic. Well, technically, what irony refers to is where there is a distinction between what a thing actually is in itself and what it represents, usually the opposite of it. So irony is a tool of sarcasm, among other things. When Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, they're so full of themselves, they're so proud of their gifts, they're so proud of, you know, their maturity, and he puts himself in contrast with them. You know, we're like the off-scouring of the earth. We're the dregs. And he says, already you've become rich. Already you are full. Already you've become kings without us. That's irony. What is being said is the opposite of what he's actually communicating. So irony is words or expressions that express something other, typically the opposite of what the language naturally expresses. And the scripture is filled with irony. Another thing that we have to detect as we read and study. Euphemism. Euphemism is a figure of speech where something that is potentially inflammatory or offensive or derogatory is substitute it's replaced by something that is more palatable when peter says judas went to his own place that's a euphemism we do the same thing when we say oh yes so and so passed away that's a euphemism And euphemism is something else that we find expressed in the scripture. Paradox. Another idea that's commonly misunderstood. People understand generally that paradox has to do with contradiction, but importantly, the contradiction is only apparent, not actual. The the contradiction is in the language itself. 
not in reality. So, for instance, in this section, 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, talking about himself, he says, In everything we commend ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, afflictions, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's paradox. How can you have nothing and possess all things? How can you be poor and make other people rich? You see, the contradiction is not in reality, it's in the language, but that makes the point that Paul's making. In other words, the poverty that he has reflects another kind of wealth that is the wealth that he imparts to other people. The sorrow that he has is actually the substance of his rejoicing, or it's essential to it. You see, the scripture wants you to think about these things, but the, that's what, how paradox works. The idea of climax, this is where there's a progression of words or ideas that, that build and ascend to a focal point or to a climax, to a crescendo. That progress can involve related concepts, like where Paul says in Romans, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? That's the use of climactic expression, the building forward. In the Psalms, you see this often around one concept. The Psalms end in Psalm 50 with this climactic praise to God. Praise the Lord this, praise the Lord that, praise the Lord in this, praise the Lord in that. Let all creation praise the Lord. It builds to a climax, to a crescendo around that common theme. It can be a climactic ascent in terms of the progress of an argument or a line of thought or a wrestling with God. That's what the songs of ascent are all about. The psalms that run from like 120 to 134, I think. The psalms of ascent. You see them start in a low place and build through argumentation to a climax at the end. And those are things that we need to see as we're reading through as well. A couple more I'll give to you. Uh, pleonasm is where there is a, a redundancy or a, a repeating of, of a particular idea or a statement or a, uh, an, a theme or a word or whatever for the purpose of emphasis. And the one that I'm mentioning is this, this statement, they will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. That statement only occurs in Ezekiel but it occurs 26 times. Well, if you find that, something like that, you should say, okay, there's something going on here that I need to pay attention to. 26 times, they will know that I am the Lord. Nowhere else. Nowhere else in the scripture. That's pleonasm. 
Apostrophe is not the thing that you put to show possession, although that is a form of apostrophe. But as a literary device, it's a device in which words are addressed to an inanimate object, usually in an exclamatory sort of way. This is very, very common in Hebrew poetry. A common example is where you know, the trees or the rocks or Zion or Jerusalem are called upon to respond to God in a certain way. In Isaiah, you have Zion being told that her warfare is ended, that with the coming of Yahweh, his return to Zion, she, her warfare is ended, and she's now to be as the bearer of good news. You, Zion, go up onto a high place and make this proclamation. Declare the return of Yahweh. That's apostrophe. Obviously, Zion isn't a human being, right? It's not a living entity. A lot of these things we catch naturally with our mind, and our mind is doing this processing, but these are things sometimes that we need to think about uh, in a more um, kind of conscious way as well. And then the last one I'll mention is this idea of a rhetorical question, Paul does this a lot. He asks a question that he's not expecting anybody to answer because the answer is obvious. It's done for emphasis. It's done to make a point. And we do this all the time. I mean, you, you see this in our, you know, this is the way language works, a rhetorical question. Jesus did the same thing very commonly. He wasn't asking for uh, a specific answer, but he asked a question so that they would have to think about it. The answer, in some sense, was obvious, but perhaps they hadn't thought about it. So all of these things, and there are many, many more figures of speech, but they're present in the scriptural literature, uh, poetry, certainly, but even in prose. These are a part of all language, and they're certainly a part of the, the scriptures more widely. But in terms of Hebrew poetry, perhaps the most distinctive thing, and, and I don't know that anybody hasn't noticed this, is this idea of parallelism. Hebrew poetry is distinguished preeminently by parallelism. And it can be very narrow, it can be very extended. But this is true whether you're reading the prophets, whether you're reading the wisdom literature, Psalms, whatever it happens to be. Parallelism. That's a structural feature, a structural feature of the text in which one or more thoughts or phrases are balanced by corresponding thoughts or phrases that often contain approximately the same number of words or a correspondence of ideas. Correlating two things together. And that way they function together, there are six general ways. The first is, is what's known often as synonymous parallelism. The two ideas are roughly saying the same thing perhaps in a slightly different way, to draw out an emphasis. It can be approximately identical, two things that are saying essentially the same thing, or very similar. If you look at Psalm 18, 4 and 5, the psalmist says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness, of wickedness, terrified me. The cords of Sheol, the grave, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. 
That's an example of synonymous parallelism. Not exactly identical, but very, very close for the sake of emphasis. The opposite of that is what's known as antithetic parallelism, and that's where the two ideas contrast or contradict. They oppose one another. They negate one another. That's especially common in the Proverbs, where the Proverbs are, in a general sense, dealing with the contrast between wisdom and folly, righteousness and wickedness, right? The fool does this, but the righteous man does that. This is this, but that is that. And the two, are, are they interpret each other. They help to flesh each other out. So characteristically, you find this again in wisdom literature because the goal of wisdom literature is to show what wisdom is by showing what it's not, what contradicts it, what opposes it. A third form of parallelism is what's called synthetic. Synthetic is where things come together or constructive parallelism. And here's where the ideas build together to form a a larger or a more complete portrait or statement. It can have the idea of the synthesis can be a matter of completion. It can be a matter of of a comparison that fills out the idea. It can be giving the reason for something. This is this because this is this. That's a form of synthetic parallelism. Climactic parallelism is the fourth type, and it's ought to be obvious. It's where the ideas build together synthetically but towards a climax, towards a climactic uh, apex that is intended and purposeful. I'll give you an example from Isaiah. This is chapter 1, and in in Isaiah chapter 1, God is starting off this condemnation of his covenant people, that he's done everything that he can He's chasing them. He's disciplined them. He says, you're bruised from head to feet and you still don't get it. What, what more is there that I can do? But listen to this, how, how this parallelism builds. The daughter of Zion, it, he's saying, I'm going to abandon you. Captivity, judgment, desolation are coming. Zion, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field like a besieged city. That's an example of climactic parallelism. You have three parts, but it builds to the ultimate end. What God is saying is this is what you're going to be, a besieged city. The fifth type of parallelism, and these are general, but uh, what's often called emblematic parallelism, and this is where the one piece of the comparison creates a kind of figure or emblematic representation of the other. Again, very common in the Proverbs, but it's, it's common throughout Hebrew poetry. Um, you know, the, in the Proverbs it says, like a gold ring in the snout of a pig, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. That's emblematic parallelism. It's painting a picture A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in the nose of a pig. 
And then the last, and this one's a little bit more complicated, and it can be more expansive, is this idea of chiastic parallelism. Chiasm is is where you work from a center point out. It's like a mirror image kind of thing. So you'd have A, B, B prime, A, A prime, right? Chiasm. Parallelism will work in that way too. So usually the, the center of that mirror is the focal point. So you have A, B, C, then the centerpiece, then C prime, B prime, A prime, working from the inside out. And usually at the center is kind of the focal point of what's being made. Well, that can be in a series of statements very closely together. It can be more stretched out. If you go back this week and you look at Zacharias's spirit-led benediction at the time of the birth of John in Luke 1, his doxology, the spirit fills him and he speaks these words, that's arranged chiastically. It's a whole chain of verses, but it's arranged chiastically. And you'll see when you look at it, how the outside and the outside, and then the next one, then the next one, then the next one, and then at the center is really the marrow of it. And that's a very common feature in Hebrew poetry that you need to look for as well. Psalm 8, uh, this celebration of man in relation to God and his creation, the whole psalm is chiastic. Another feature of Hebrew poetry that we don't often detect um, because it's a you know, working in English, is, is an acrostic. I think a lot of people understand Psalm 119 is acrostic. So it marches through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So many stanzas will start with Aleph, and then so many will be Baith, and then Gimel and Aleph. Mo- moving through where, where those stanzas begin with the letter of, you know, succeeding letters of the, the Hebrew alphabet. The, the poem of Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, is an acrostic. 22 verses, each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's another form of Hebrew poetry, which we don't, again, in English, we don't tend to catch. Same thing with rhythm and meter. If you read, some, if you read Hebrew poetry in Hebrew, you would have a sense of rhythm and meter. We detect it in English poetry, right? I don't know how many people here like to read poetry, but that's a huge part of it is the rhythm of it, right? The meter of it, the way the sounds play together. Well-written poetry brings all those things together. And that's the same with the scriptures as well. But once again, in English, it tends to be lost upon us. So that's my overview to the mechanics of this thing of Hebrew poetry and recognizing some of the ways in which we need to apply ourselves to interpreting it. But here's where I want to end today. Um, my conclusion is that the Psalms are critical to our devotion and our worship. They have to be at the center of our devotion and our worship, our interaction with the scripture. But they really serve that end only as we, in a sense, enter into them and are embraced by them and transformed by them. In other words, the Psalms can't just be a part of our reading schedule. Okay, I read through the Bible in a year. Mm, Here's my five chapters, next five chapters, next five. If we read the Psalms in that way, then they won't profit us. 
We have to drink them in. You know, in other words, we have to pray the Psalms. We have to sing the Psalms in a sense. That's how they were intended to be uh, utilized and interacted with. Praying on them, living them out, meditating on them. And I just want to give you some quotes that kind of show this idea. Um, Cornelius Plantinga says, the Psalms are the language we use when we need a voice other than our own. The Psalms are the language we use when we need a voice other than our own. And Athanasius, in a similar fashion, 4th century church father said this, the Psalms are unique out of all the books of the Bible because most of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. There's that idea of them providing a language for us. When we need a voice other than our own, they speak for us. Another man says the Psalms have, among other roles in Scripture, one which is peculiarly their own. They touch and kindle us rather than simply speak to us. They don't just address us, they touch and they kindle us. Another has said the book as a whole teaches us that with the God of the covenant, no human emotion is out of place in prayer. The Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us tend to think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. That's an important statement. The Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. The crying out to him, the agonizing, the conflictedness. The psalmists are profoundly honest before God. Sometimes they are praising him for his profound blessings. Often they are crying out in confusion, frustration, and even anger at God for his seeming indifference or absence. We find company and comfort here in the midst of the realities of our human experience, seeing that others have gone and felt that way before. And yet they learned and invite us to learn to taste and see that the Lord is good. The Psalms should not just be a part of our reading schedule. With their profound honesty, the psalmists not only give us words to express our most weighty feelings, they also thereby form our own language of praise and prayer. In the 4th century, Ambrose called the Psalms a gymnasium for the soul. Practice forms habits, and the psalmists guide us in the way of trusting in the Lord. Again, they teach us that with the God of the covenant, no human emotion is out of place in prayer. No human emotion is out of place in prayer. So the psalms should not simply be something that we look at once in a while, or again, part of our annual reading schedule, you know, just kind of letting our eyes float across them in order for them to really serve the function that that God intended them, to be Israel's songbook, to be this which informs and inflames and transforms, 
we have to have our perspective, our priorities, our passions, our practice of sonship brought into subjection to the Psalms. They are the songs of sonship. In its crying out, in its praise, in its devotion, in its frustration, in its exasperation, all of the dimensions of our lives with God, the Psalms help us with that. They show us what it is to be sons in the sun. And that's my hope and my prayer for myself and for all of you that that through this consideration of the Psalms, and we're not going to go through each one verse by verse, but we're going to deal with some of these larger concepts and ideas. But as we do, I hope that we will grow as worshipers. But the Psalms will really become central to how we think about and do this thing of worship as a life of prayer and praise living out the lives of sonship. Father, I know that this was kind of mechanical today and perhaps a little bit dry, but I also know that so often we don't even think about how we read the scriptures and certainly the way we interact with its poetry. I know just the way that I see people interact with the prophets, it's evident that people don't understand the genre and how to even approach the poetry in which the prophets wrote. But you've given us your word in this poetic form because of its density, its richness, its conciseness. The concentrated way in which it draws together Images, ideas, affections, things that move us in the very depth of our being in a very profound way. And I pray that they would have that role in our lives, that we would be a people who meditate on and pray through the Psalms, that they would become a part of our private, personal worship, that they would inform and inflame our hearts, drive our knowledge of you, drive our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it is to be sons and daughters in him. I pray for each one here, Father, that you would deliver us from carelessness, that you would deliver us from complacency, that you would deliver us from the things that would chill our hearts and silence our minds, that you would kindle afresh the fire of devotion, the fire of love, the fire of zeal, the fire of the privilege and and high calling of being sons and daughters in Christ our Lord. So meet each one according to his need. Stoke that fire afresh that we would all by your grace and your mercy, grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.